most of the coaches I see are highly emotional and have little interaction and they and they don't really solve problems in the game. So then you start questioning, well, what is the role of the coach at game day? Hello and welcome to the Offfield Rugby Pod. My name is Brian Moylette, former Irish age grade international, now playing and coaching in Canada. Each week I chat with a player or coach about their journey and get their insights. On Instagram, I share content around mental performance and clips from the pods. So follow me there at offfieldrugby if that's something you're interested in. Also, if you enjoy the pod, please be sure to send it on to some friends who you think will get value from it. And please subscribe to the pod wherever you're listening so that you don't miss an episode. Cheers. Today I'm chatting with Aaron Tackle, who is a coach, a coach educator, and a former national team analyst. Aaron has been head coach of the BC senior men's team in the past, and that's where we first crossed paths. In 2019, we played against Canada in a World Cup warm-up match. He's also a coach educator, as I mentioned, which essentially is the person that coaches the coaches. He's helped me in my coaching over the past couple of years, And in the pod, Aaron talks about what makes an effective coach, how coaches can influence games, and how to get the most out of pre-match meetings. He also talks about how you can challenge players during training to optimize their growth, how you can prepare your team for the different scenarios that may arise in a game, and how to best structure your trainings specific to your team. He also worked as an analyst for Rugby Canada across a number of different teams from senior to underage and we chat about what that role was like and what he learned from it. We also chat for a little bit about the Six Nations. So shortly it'll be episode number 38 with Aaron Tackle. A lot of people stress about money. Where should you be investing? Are you prepared if there's a crash? And loads more. And if you're not an expert, finances can be really daunting. I know the people at Sparks Wealth, and they're brilliant. What they do is they educate you on your finances without any jargon. They create a personalized plan for you and manage your money so that it's working for you. And so you don't need to be worrying about it. You can book a free, no obligation Zoom call now on their website, sparkswealth.ie. So what were your thoughts on the Six Nations? Oh, hit me with a hard one. Welshman, early yeah. on. Ah, <laughs> uh, what were my thoughts? Yeah, I read a really interesting article today from the Welsh media about um, was last year's results masking a deeper problem? Uh, is there problems in the regions? Um, but on the whole, look, it, it's just great to see full stadiums Rugby being back played in the spring, um, a really well contested tournament, and I think the last weekend everybody was competitive, weren't they? So we're 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 a long way down the road from where we were twelve months ago, that's for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. It's a uh, it is unreal seeing fans back, as you say. But um, it's interesting with Wales. I think like everyone always knew that for the last few years, didn't they? That the regions aren't great and that. Like last year, there were problems. Yeah, and, and, and Wales is a country where you can't hide problems. Um, Friday night games, obviously, they, they've talked about them not being very popular and, you know, 10,000 seats left unsold 
Um, you, you're not seeing that in London. You're not seeing that in Dublin. Um, yeah, there's some there's some stuff to figure out. That's for sure. Yeah, why why do you think that is? Was it ticket prices I heard? Because I was I saw that, um, and the last couple of games at the Millennium or the Principality, like a lot of empty seats up towards the back, and you just never would have seen that in years gone by. Yeah, you're right. I, I do think it's probably ticket prices. You know, um, I think the Friday nights have never been good from what I read. Um, just, you know, people just can't get there, you know, like can't get from work and then travel, public transport. You know, it's you do have to get into the middle of a city in, in Cardiff to get to a game. Um, and then, yeah, I think ticket prices, is it's expensive to take the family, isn't it? You start paying £100 for a ticket times however many people you take in. And I think from what I read, they just left it a bit long to to get the, the cheaper tickets. Um, it's unusual. Um, but I, I have read, like I said, um, the Friday night games have not been not been that well received. But it, and, and it goes back to TV money, doesn't it? Everybody's got to, I think everybody had to have one or had to have one that's not the Saturday. So is it a Sunday or a Friday? You know, there's all these little nuances to the tournament that, yeah, we we don't know. We don't get to. We only get to see the results of those choices. Yeah, and what do you make of Eddie Jones and the flack that uh, he's taken at the moment? Oh, he's a master of deception, isn't he? Um, I think he could talk himself out of pretty much everything, and I think most people don't really know. Like, is he struggling, or is there some genius behind the madness? Is uh, you know, I just I just listened to his book. Um, I, I had somebody say to me the other day, you know, is he just trying stuff out? And will we will we find out the master plan twelve months down the road at the World Cup? Um, I don't know. I think at that level you got to you got to win everything, don't you? Otherwise, maybe you don't get to the World Cup. Yeah, it's interesting because Ireland always have gone for that win everything and like always well in the last number of years done well in the six nations but like we never ever do well in the world cup and then england like like eddie jones has proven at world cups that he does well like with australia south africa japan england the last time like he always does well and yeah i don't know i think i think the world cups are important and i think he has clearly changed like he's clearly changed the team quite a bit you know with marcus smith joe march and these kind of guys don brand yeah i i still think there'll be a force we reckoned with you know in 12 months or there's just five minutes of madness isn't it after every game you know eddie jones wins he's a master he loses he needs to get sacked pvac's under pressure or you know um crowley they haven't won for 30 games and, and then he wins one and, and all of a sudden things are looking pretty peachy in, in Rome, you know, and oh, it's, there's, there's just so much public opinion on stuff we don't really get to see behind the scenes. You know, there's, there's a whole Wizard of Oz thing going on, I think, where there's just there's so many factors that we just don't see. Yeah, what did you make of the chat? Hope I think hopefully it's put to bed, but of South Africa coming into the Six Nations and Italy going. I don't think Italy will ever go. Um, whether that's just my personal opinion or, or whether there's contractual stuff there, 
South Africa coming in. Oh, I don't know. Tradition. It comes back to the old traditionalist stuff, doesn't it? Um, there's a lot of history in that tournament. Um, will it be good? I'm not sure. I'm going to give you my personal opinion. I, I, I hope it kind of stays stays with the European countries. Um, and it's just adding more rugby, isn't it? You know, I, I, not having been a professional rugby player, but knowing quite a few like yourself, you know, that's just elongating the tournament even further because now you've got an uneven number of teams in there. So it's not just one extra weekend, it's likely more. Um, you know, how does that fit in with professional contracts and games on the body? Um, I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure if it's the answer. What's the question? I mean, what, what problem are we trying to solve? That, I guess that's a good question. Yeah. Is it probably more money, but then like do South Africa bring more? Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's cause isn't there a lot of talk with all the ex outside investment coming in with the, um, what are their names? Um, Oh, I forget it. Those like venture capital firms or whatever buying up parts like the Premiership and URC and Six Nations and all that, and and that then they want to have the best spectacle possible versus the tradition. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's down to money, isn't it? And it's down to TV audiences. Probably there's a there's a big market there. The, the time zone is is right. You know, London and Cape Town, I think, are aligned. Um. Yeah, potentially. If, I mean, if, if if the problem is money, then that's probably the solution. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, yeah, I hope it'll stay in anyway. Um, talk to me about your time working as an analyst with Canada. Yeah, uh, started in 2006. I think I started, sorry, that's not right. I started with Rugby Canada in 2016. Um, and I think my analysis journey started in around 2000. And Eight. Um, I'm just self-taught. I, I started coaching around 2007, 2008. I had some friends that had just finished at Cardiff Met, um, and they did the the master's program there in performance analysis. It was the first one in the world, I think, and quite a few of them walked into pretty good jobs. So I, I leaned on a few of them because I thought it might help the team that I was working with. Um, I bought my own license and, and just through trial and error started to figure out, okay, well, how, how can I add value? Um, to a point where um, there was a job vacancy in 2016 after the 2015 World Cup, um, which I applied for and luckily I got, which was it was a really big kind of sliding doors moment in my life. I think it brought me to, to BC. Um, it gave me a real insight into international rugby without the, the pressure of having performances weighing heavily over, you know, over my shoulders. Um, certainly, if if performances don't go well, the first person to blame isn't the analyst, which is which is good. But it's not that you you don't feel the pressure. Um, but I think all in all, I, I worked with most of the teams, men, uh, male and female, um, throughout all the different age grades. Um, I probably did around fifty international international test matches. Um, Travelled significantly around the world, and it. It's interesting is that you go to all these different places, but you never really have time to, to leave the training field in the hotel. It's it's uh, it's knuckle down and get the work done, especially when you're working on your own. Um, but certainly gave me um, some pretty cool insights into what I think is good coaching. 
what I think is probably pretty poor coaching. Um, having watched lots of coaches go about their craft, I think that was that was pretty cool. Having you know now spending all of my time in that coaching domain rather and, and stepping away from the analysis side of things. Although I'm starting to bring some of that um, those skills into the coaching world, so I'm starting to analyze coaches a lot more now, trying to turn the camera away from players and more to coaches and, and analyze their behavior, their language, um, why they do things. Um, maybe provide a little bit more accountability, but certainly help with reflection on, on their performance. I often found that coaches quite easily point the finger when the performance doesn't go well. Um, but I heard Eddie Jones say in a podcast once, I think the game really gives you an insight into whether you got your preparation right. And I don't know if, if enough coaches reflect on that. Yeah. Um, and so you were coaching and with the the analysis, were you always more interested in that kind of side of it? Because when I was younger, I didn't realize how much work goes into being an analyst. Like, um, like it's, it's mm. very hands-on heavy going like um like data i suppose versus kind of coaching there is quite a bit of a difference isn't there yeah um i think there's hard skills and there's soft skills you know there's a lot of the the, the, the techni- technology and um all the skills that you need to kind of pick up along the way to to get the information to influence the team you want to do and then the influence bit is the soft skills it's still coaching i think um it's still trying to have an influence over people. Um, it's still trying to change behavior. Um, done in different ways, and that can be analyst to coach, analyst to player. Um, so, this, yeah, there's, there's a real range of skills. Um, you know, setting up a, six different broadcast angles that are in Brazil when you don't speak the language and, uh, you know, the power goes off five minutes before kickoff. Those are certainly, like, there's some problem-solving skills for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's the skills of um, resilience, I think. You know, being on the road a long time, being away from your family, um, often staying up through the night to get work done, um, especially when you're when you're with a with a national team is slightly different to a domestic team, where Sunday isn't off. It's Sunday is is a learning day or a travel day and information is expected a little bit earlier than maybe in the domestic game. Coaches want things by Sunday morning rather than Monday morning. Um, so, the, you know, I think the longest tour I did was about nine weeks. Um, wow. I was, was pretty mentally and physically, physically broken by the end of, of that. And, you know, it took a, a lot to get through something like that. Yeah. And so working like when a game would finish in the evening, would you, crack on through the night reviewing it to have it ready for the morning yeah um so normally an early kickoff is an analyst friend because it provides more hours of daylight on on the same day um evening kickoffs are pretty tough um but typically um yeah once the game's done it would be you know leave before the team typically not be part of the match function and this is this is the typical story it's not always There, there are a lot of analysts that are starting to to see this now and 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 see the value in being at the the post match function and show that they are important to to sit and have have a meal 
with everybody else rather than run off and do the work. But yeah, sometimes it meant um, back to the hotel and probably about eight hours work. So working through the night, um, at, at different people have different workflows, but it would often be um, working through kind of your main coding of the game, scrums, lineouts, that kind of stuff. And then um, working through individual coding as well. You know, we didn't have the luxury of, of um, things like Okta, which some, some countries have, where the coding could be done for you within about eight hours. Um, and often we found it wasn't incredibly accurate because our players weren't as well known by other people that were coding that information, so they would get some things wrong. So often it was just a case of us doing it by ourselves. Um, and then typically having everything finished, wrapped up, and reports done by breakfast the next morning, which, which can come around as early as 7 o'clock. Yeah, and so when you're, say, with the men's national team, like what kind of things, like, so set piece, like scrums, lineouts, um, but what, yeah, kind of things would you be presenting? Um, it depends. It's different from team to team and coach to coach. I think the head coach will have a heavy influence on that kind of stuff. Um, some like to provide a lot of direction. Some like the analysts to, you know, that's their area of expertise. So they'll provide direction. Um, I mean, there's this kind of some simple stuff that almost everybody would do. Um, you know, possession territory, um, the basics, kind of the spine of the game. Um, but then you also want to reflect on the learning from the week. And your preparation. And I think um, one of the things that I, I really had an interest in is did we take something from the previous six days? And did it transfer to the game? Because ultimately, that's our role as, as coaches is, I call it training transfer, but if you spend the week doing something, you often want to see it happen during the game or or at least have an understanding as to why it didn't happen. And, you know, maybe you prepare for something and, and then in the game it changes and the players see something else and maybe they change their minds and that's okay as long as they can rationalize that. Well, I think the training transfer is huge and I think that's often where I'm going now with analyzing coaches is is what you're doing in the build-up to the game actually reflective of how you're playing? Is yeah. the learning being shown? You know, talk about checking for understanding or well, the, the game is checking for understanding from players, isn't it often? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting you mentioned earlier about Eddie Jones. I listened to his book too, but that the game being the feedback um, because everything that the players do is because of you as a coach or is down to you as a coach. If they make a mistake by calling the wrong player, if they do something wrong, like if they make a mistake, it's because of you. Like, you know, that you didn't prepare them to think clearly under pressure or, you know, whatever happens. And uh, yeah, it's, it's so interesting as well with the, as I think sometimes coaches are certainly in the past I've fallen into, whereas during the week you try and do so much. And then at the weekend, you're like, well, we've done all the, we've done a million things. And then you're trying to do a million things at the weekend. And then you win or you lose, you know, but you're not like, what are you looking at? Like you say, and it's like, what are you preparing for? And you can't, you can't expect a player to remember a million things at the weekend. Yeah, there's two things you've reminded me of there, Brian. First thing is um, 
does training look like the game? Because if your training doesn't look anything like the game, then it's going to be really hard to implement some of that stuff and, and really make it sticky. Um, and the second thing is, um, as an analyst for England, Kaz Morgan, and, and one of the things that he's talked about is there's, there's some accountability with his role and a, and a level of trust where I think really what his job title is is more head of learning rather than performance analyst is creating a, the best possible environment, whether that's in a meeting or in the, um, on the field during training, is how do we get this information to stick as well as we possibly can, taking into account different people want different things. Um, how do we engage the brain? It's a bit, it's a bit more cognitive than, than maybe the traditional way of going about things. And I quite like that. And and that that doesn't happen in a lot of environments. And I think where it does, it's probably really evident of the competency of the players and their their IQ and how much learning they retain. Because if we if if it's not retained over time, then it's just lost, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting all about them um, training looking like the game. What explain that? That um just the importance of yeah what you're doing in training to mimic what's going to be done in the game. I think it's making training look like your game. Um, I often say to to coaches of younger players as well, is we can't all go out and try and make our under fifteens practice look like the international men's game. Just that's not your game. So understanding what are the demands of your game, that can be physical. Um, so ball in play time is, is an obvious one. Um, if you spend your week standing around talking, then that doesn't look, doesn't reflect the game. It doesn't condition you for the game. Um, so you want all of the physical stuff to line up, whether that's collisions, which is big now, isn't it, with World Rugby bringing in, starting to track and monitor the, the number of collisions and, and contact within the preparation phase of the week. Um, it's probably just getting players to have to solve problems. Um, I often find, and I, I'm not the first to say this, but teams get really good at playing against themselves because everybody knows that you know they, both teams will defend the same way. If you play against each other, they'll defend the same way. They'll likely attack the same way. And you'll start to figure each other out. It doesn't really leave a lot for you to have to solve. Um, so it's it's more about can the defence coach coach the attack to do something and then see if they react Can the and, and vice versa sometimes. I think that that's key. Um, can you get um, one team to play like the team you're going to play against on the weekend and, you know, like what is their identity? Do they kick a lot, a lot? And can you reflect that in your training during the week? I think it's really important. Yeah, and another thing I think is interesting is something you mentioned there with um, giving the players problems to solve. And if you do that, they're likely going to fail and things won't look perfect. And I think that's something else that coaches struggle with, like struggle with. And I've certainly been there in the past where it's like if there's a mistake, it's like, people are going mad it's like well come on we can't drop a ball or whatever but like you say you have to give them problems to solve it can't just all be like we're just kind of going through the motions against each other and it's all flowing nicely because we defend kind of soft and we attack at 60 percent and everything looks fine 
Mm-hmm. It's um, yeah, it's, it's something that I looked at um, a few months ago, and I was starting to put together a bit of a what is my philosophy around um, my coaching, and, and one of the big things for me is training variability, and in my language, and that that can mean a couple of things, but for me, I think there's there's definitely different ways that you can train. You can you can do the kind of a block practice drill type stuff where there's there's a lot of learning, there's a lot of interacting, there's a lot of repetition, and I think that's important. There was a stage we went through where everybody said that drills are bad, and that's not true. Bad drills are bad, and good drills are good. Um, but it serves a purpose, and you coach differently. You coach differently to a small-sided game, and it will give you different things. Um, and then I think probably the one area that I don't see a lot of is um, creating scenarios and playing tactically. Um I've just been through a season of basketball and, and I guess if I, I, did, I don't know much about the game, but what I did bring was just a bit of variability in practice and um, can you solve a problem of being X number of points up or down with X number of minutes left on the clock? Um, and, and if two teams are trying to play a different way, then, then you'll kind of solve that problem of having to play against yourself, um, which I think is really important. Yeah, nice. So in a rugby point, in a rugby uh, scenario, there, what, what, how would you do that in training? So, say, like, all right, lads, you're ten points down with five minutes to go. How do you go about it? Or you're four points down with with three minutes to go. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, um, I mean, we worked together, didn't we, at the end of last year, and um, in a preseason game, we we did just that. You know, um, your eight points down with three minutes to play. You're going to start with a shot at goal. If you get it, you'll start with a restart where you would have it in a game. And and if you miss it, you'd start it where you'd have a restart in the game and you just got to play and, and try and win. Ultimately, both teams are trying to win, which is going to change the picture dramatically of how people go about that game. So one team's going to chase and one team's going to try and hold the lead. And we've seen that. Look at Wales on the weekend, 78 minutes on the clock um, and they're ahead. And then the clock's in 80 and they're behind. And the one thing they couldn't do was afford to give away a, a try. Um, so how do you solve that problem? And, and they didn't. You know, they kind of played into the hands of given, given the, the opposition the opportunity to solve their problem, which was they needed, I think they were six behind. So there's only, there only one way they could have solved their problem. And they managed it. Um, so that, that's the type of stuff when I, when I talk about making the training look like the game. I think that's important. You can't always train that way because then as a coach, you're going to have to expect things to go wrong. You're going to have to step out. You're going to have to really kind of remove yourself a little bit more. Whereas in the drill skill-based stuff, you can really step in. Um, so they're both important. You've just got to kind of manage that time throughout the week and what, what's the most important for you to get to where you need to be by the time you compete. Yeah, I um, I'd forgotten about that. I suppose for people listening, you were my coach in the yeah, preseason last fall, and uh, yeah, I love that we had a, we had a preseason game, and it was all that scenario stuff, and it just got me thinking that that's something that a team can do in training at any time. You know, you don't need to be in a preseason match, but if you're, you know, if you do fifteen twenty minutes of contact or like a game in a week you can have two teams and you can say exactly that. It's like, right, there's three, you get three minutes on the clock and you're eight points down. 
or you know you're start and you're starting with a kick or you're starting with a penalty here or whatever 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 and um it's so much fun as well like it's so much fun doing those different things and like having to think and it gives brings different energy into the team and it gets people thinking versus we're doing a game for 20 minutes here you go mm-hmm. yeah and i think I'll, I'll plug him because i know he's been on your podcast and he often he sometimes refers to me um so russell earnshaw the magic academy their tactical scenario cards I mean, I think if there's one resource you need as a coach, if, if this type of stuff excites you, um, it, it's a massive, massive resource. Um, and, it, and it's just follow it, categorize. Um, here are some attack scenarios, defense scenarios, transition scenarios, scrum, line out, kickoff. It, it's all there. Um, I love it. Um, and there's different ways to do it. I've, I've sometimes gone to a field with 11 and, and two dice, roll two dice and there's 11 different outcomes that you can get. You just add the numbers up. Um, and that, whatever number that corresponds to, you play that scenario. So you get a little bit of random, randomization and um, it, it, you can make it really, really fun. The other thing I'd say, Brian, is it's not until you play the scenario of 78 minutes on the clock and you've got two minutes left and you've got the ball and then you start to realize how long two minutes can be yeah. with the ball. Um, so... What are the different ways to solve that problem? Because often teams get that wrong. For sure. And you get, if you haven't practiced, I've been there where I've been on teams where we haven't practiced and you have two or three people screaming to do one thing, five or six people screaming to another thing. And it's like, most of it is trying, now I'm sure Wales weren't in that situation, but it's like trying to get people onto the same wavelength in the game, like you say, but that's why you do it in training. And yeah, it's funny because remember back in the day, I think it was 08, Monster did pick and goes for about eight minutes to finish out a Heineken Cup. But yeah, I can't do that anymore. And it is interesting because, yeah, it's like, do you kick it? Do you not kick it? You have to get out of your territory. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, Yeah, it's a good one to practice for sure. Yeah, there's been some stuff. Um, I mean, I'm sure we we're going to get to it anyway, but I've been, I'm, I'm doing... Um... A master's in in sports performance coaching and one of the modules we've, we've talked about decision making and about how people make decisions and and one of those things is through experience being able to to have either shared mental models or um being able to recognize situations and and do what they call it like a simple match to previous experience and knowing how to solve that problem because you've been there before so you've got something to, to connect it to. So the decision-making um, is an easier process because you've seen that picture, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And so if you've never seen that picture, why would everybody be on the same page? Why would you have some cohesion in that moment? Um, because often a lot of teams are trying it out for the first time. Um, and then, I mean, the only thing you've got then is luck, really, to rely on. There's not much else because... Um, you know, rugby is a game of trying to get 15 people to try and identify, read, and solve a problem all at the same time. And that, that's cohesion, isn't it? Um, if you've got 15 people solving a problem a different way, um, it, it likely won't go well. Yeah, you're in trouble for sure. Just even think about that one with the whales, we'll move on. But uh, they, 
the way they didn't make him score in the corner as well. Yeah, I think the last like the last defender coming across, and even the second last defender kind of, maybe it was a it was a heavier player who couldn't keep up, but um it just seemed that he was able to give that ball on the inside as well to score under the sticks to make sure that they won it. Versus like I've been in I've been on goal lines where you're down to fourteen and you're like, you know, you're really under the pump or whatever, whatever. And it's it's like make sure they don't score. You know, you could be like eight or nine points up with three, four minutes to go. And it's kinda of, you know, it's make sure they don't score under the sticks. If they are gonna score, let them get in, in the corner, you know, that kind of way. But yeah, it was interesting. Um so talk to me about that the masters you're doing. So sports performance and doing it online, is it? Or yeah, um this distance, oh. yeah. Distance, yeah. University of Stirling in Scotland. Um, it's a beautiful place. I played it. We played a game there actually with the Canadian development team once um, against kind of a Glasgow development group. Um, but yeah, it's all online. Um, it's two years part time, so um, I can keep my day job as a school teacher. Um, and it's really just um, delivered through a really great platform called Canvas where the learning's all just laid out week by week and you can you can work through it, you can get a little bit behind, you can get a little bit ahead, I think, as long as you you make the deadlines for the assignments. Um, you know, life happens. Uh, it's a lot of, you know, professionals with, with families and, uh, and, and different things going on in their lives. So it, it's working out really, really well for me. Um, two modules at a time uh, in kind of a three semesters per year. Um, and the first one for me um, is called Coaching Concepts, um, which has kind of been a bit of a journey that reflecting back on it now, it kind of the, the dots are starting to, to connect. So started out with understanding knowledge. Um, what is it? Where does it come from? Different different theoretical models of, of knowledge. Almost that, that stuff, the stuff you know, but you probably can't describe to somebody why you know it, um, like tacit knowledge and um, explicit and implicit knowledge. So it's pretty theoretical stuff, which then kind of led into coaching effectiveness, um, questioning how do you judge how effective a coach is by the performance of the players? Um, can you be a bad coach with 23 good players? they go on and win a championship, does that then make you an effective coach? Does that make you a good coach? Um, I guess would be, you know, one of the many questions around effectiveness. Um, you'd probably go down that rabbit hole again of um, the preparation for performance. Um, some stuff around decision-making we touched on there um, and all the different theoretical models from classical decision-making through to um, natural decision-making, kind of the, the, the slow deliberative stuff through to the, the fast intuitive stuff um, which is fascinating um, and a really good project around just analyzing um, some footage of, of me taking a training session and trying to kind of pick through the decisions that I'm, I've made and what types of decisions were they um, we've touched a little bit on on power kind of the 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 position of power or the power and influence you have over people as a coach, um, ethics uh, and that kind of stuff, um, which I think is fascinating as well. Um, and then we're starting to just finish up now and wrap up with expertise. So um, 
what is an expert um and i think there's a lot of research there and i, and I think it's, you could have a really good debate around expertise and um in whose eyes are you an expert um i think there's some there's some solid debate you can have around it but there's probably a lot of gray area as well that you could get in some juicy stuff yeah uh, on that i think i heard eddie jones say as well before it's like someone said someone mentioned a good coach and he goes oh mate we're all just trying i'm just trying to be a good coach or you know that's just what it is and you know if you take ego out of it i don't know some people you know think they're great but um yeah the likes of eddie jones that's what he said and i think you're just always learning aren't you yeah, there's a there's a really great model if anybody's keen to look it up called the Dunning Kruger um, model, and it's almost like a um, uh, like this steep curve of um, as coaches we kind of we think we've got it all figured out um, yeah. from from research. Um, added novices typically rank themselves, and this is in the, in the teaching world, not just the coaching world. Um, they, they often rank themselves about eight point five out of ten of have they got all the skills they need? And experts will typically rank themselves about 4.5. And I think it's the journey we go through um, where things go well. And then, you know, we, we come up against some stuff that doesn't go so well. And and most of us get to a place where we just, the only thing we can agree on is this is hard. This is really difficult. And and there's so much to learn and know. And, and like, like you said, Eddie Jones often says, this is just a journey that likely none of us will get to the destination. Mm. Yeah. Does that, um, that saying I'll butcher, but I was intelligent. People are so full of doubt and fools so certain or something like that. Um, but what coach effectiveness, that sounds interesting. So how would you analyzing it, looking at a coach, observing a coach, how would, do you see if the coach is a quote unquote good coach or has work to do or how do you perceive that? Well, I think the answer to every good question is it depends. Um, it's going to depend on, on quite a few things. Um, yeah. Context is key, isn't it? Um, listen, it's going to be very different if you're with a bunch of five and six year olds, a good coach is likely one that, has engaged everybody there. People are having fun. Um, probably at one end of the spectrum. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, at the elite level of the game, I think it, it's got to be significantly different, hasn't it? Um, there's lots of other factors at play. Um, I think an effective coach is, is probably one that's got a very good base of knowledge. Um, in a specific role, likely. Um, so it's domain specific. So if you're in a rugby context, it would likely be a scrum coach. You're going to have to have some really specific knowledge in that area. Um, I think if you're an effective coach, you're curious and always learning and getting better. I don't. Th- um, there's a an interesting quote uh, about um, you know years doesn't necessarily make you effective or an expert. Um, because often you can coach the same thing 25 years in a row. If you've never reflected on that performance and grown from it, you've really only coached one year 25 times. Um, Mm. So I think those would be two big things. I think you you have to have 
some domain knowledge you have to have you know some some identified some skills that you're reflecting on um and you've got, you've got to be a curious learner you've got to continue to drive that that journey for yourself yeah it's interesting about coaching i think the split between uh technical tactical knowledge and game knowledge and um managing people and getting the best out of people because like you say if you've 23 good players and i watched ted lasso recently which is unreal but like if you have brilliant players and you can get them just buzzing then you could get good results without knowing too much of the tactical technical or tactical technical but if you say don't have great players you probably need a bit more of that to impart on them. Yeah, that's the great constant, isn't it? From from one end to the other of the scale is um, with it, we're dealing with humans. We're going to have to interact socially. And if you haven't got those skills, it doesn't matter how much you know. You know, get, I think we're pretty good at these quotes. So why don't we go another one? Um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, that, that's a great one as well, isn't it? Um mm. That, that, that almost always holds true. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's like if yeah, if you don't care for a coach, then it doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter. Like what what they've done, what they know, or anything. Yeah. And then um, then the power and influence. How what what was that about? Um. I think um, just for, from a coaching, but also a, a teaching perspective, you have to understand that you do have, you are in a position of power, especially if you're working with, with children. So there's a, there's a whole other ethical game that comes into play, isn't it, with, with coaching that we've got to understand um, how we make people feel. Um, certain boundaries that you, you just don't go near or cross. And I think sometimes we can, you know, especially at the performance end of the game, if, if the if the pressure comes on, I think your position of power can be abused. Um, so it's really understanding um, and being able to self-regulate the power that you that, that comes with with coaching, because you do, like you said, you you do get to control some environments and you do plan people's weeks, and you you are going to have an effect on. How much contact and how long are they going to train? And um, and, it, and then the whole minefield of, of the social emotional side of, of being a part of a team and a group and, and interacting. Um, I think some people get that really wrong, don't they? Mm. Yeah. And um, with the, yeah, certainly. Yeah, important to be aware of that. And I, I started out as a player coach, and it was very when I was in America, like six, seven years ago. It was interesting that um, doing that because at one point, at one time, I'd be coaching, and I was I'd only coach about three years, like underage at that point. Then I was in university, and you're coaching, and then you're playing, and then the other coach, he was he was kind of like a dictator, we'll say. But he would do, he would act in that kind of way, and all the other players would be muttering, as you can imagine, like 
you know, F this, whatever, whatever. And I, you know, would step in as a player and be the same as them. I'm like, yeah, oh, this is whatever. And then you have to step back and you're a coach. And it is, uh, then after a while I did learn that I then started coaching more and net wasn't a player coach after that. But you do understand the difference when you move like from being a player to a coach and the relationships that you have with players and different things like that. Yeah. And, you know, give you a brief insight. Um, I'm starting to, due to a, a family member recently passed away, unfortunately. And, um, and a large part is heavily involved in sports and rugby wasn't the, the sole um, cause, but there was, there was some history of concussions. Um, and I've recently spoken to Jamie Cudmore um, and, and lots of other people, Alex Popham, uh, a fellow Welshman, spoke to recently about this of the dangers of concussions the dangers of cte um players now getting early onset dementia uh, and struggling after their careers and you know that's that's not directly reflective of a coach but a coach does have some power and influence in there and there are some ethics at play um a player that you rush back on after they've had a bump and we're much, much better at it now. But even you and I, I mean, you're still playing, but I still remember not really taking concussions probably anywhere near as seriously as they as they likely should. And there are some some significant court cases um, coming up where this stuff, you know, this this truly affects people's lives from 40 years on for the for the rest of their lives. And um, we've seen the the movie Concussion with Will Smith. Um, so the information is out there, but it still happens. And I think that, you know, that's the type of stuff where coaches are, are taking a gamble or they don't know, um, or they're really crossing a line as far as um, the power that they have available to them to put players in pressurized situations to, to play with injuries and, and to put themselves in at risk. Um, you know, I think it's, it's important and it's the, the type of stuff that you're not going to get out of some of our formal education system that, that's floating around um, for most coaches at the moment. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. And then, yeah, I remember back like some things that now looking at them are scary, like just people playing on. And even myself, like the education just wasn't there. Like when I was younger, I wouldn't want to go off and I, you know, you'd hide concussions and you'd, geez, you know, you nearly still would as a player like but yeah there just has to be that much so much um more edu- yeah the education and just yeah pulling people off and yeah not rushing people back and it's a tough one that yeah the head I suppose yeah but like even injuries as a player you want to play and you'll play through them and it's sometimes you need to save players from themselves yeah I mean definitely I've been looking at this this year's six stations we've seen players knocked out cold and playing six days later now I'm not a doctor and I, I won't say whether that's right or wrong and yeah. somebody else is making those decisions but you will both remember the days where if you had a concussion it was like you were a mandatory three-week stand down mm. and I think you know that's great but then how many players said oh don't tell them you've got a concussion because that means you've got to take three weeks off uh, and so people would hide um, at that point and you know so I don't know the answer I've definitely got more questions than, than solutions to this but um something's got to change and, and there's it's certainly some coaches out there that um, are putting people in, in some pretty frightening, risky places that, you know, we've, we, we've got to understand our power as coaches and, and, and 
um, there's a lot of coaches that will talk about probably, you know, if you're in a more of a professional environment, people like uh, your medical team, they're not picking, they're not making selections on the weekend. So you're likely going to get players opening up to them a lot more and, and really get the truth into the bottom of some things. And um, I think that's the frightening thing, isn't it? People are just scared of not getting selected on the weekend because of, and they've got to hide stuff. Um, and that might be the culture within the team. I mean, it can come down to many things, but it's certainly something we've got to highlight. So I'm glad we've talked about it today. Yeah, for sure. Um, and going back to the analyzing coaches and like their performance. So remember when you came in and worked with us in UBC, something that was brilliant was the, well, many things are brilliant, but one thing was the um, pre-match meeting. So we were, we as coaches, you came in as completely external, not involved with us. And we had a team of three coaches, I think. Yeah, three. Um, I'm the attack coach. And then we had a set piece and defense. And um, But that we were giving too much information before the game and that the players couldn't. It was essentially like white noise to them because there was too much. And yeah, you highlighted that and identified that. And it's it's interesting because I'm still playing and I know that if a coach says more than two words to me before a game, I'm like, just piss off. I want to play here, you know, go. I'm like, just leave me at it. You know, give me one word or give me one point And I will, I will think about that one point, but you give me too much. It's go away. And I still was, yeah, giving too much information, but um, what kind of other stuff when you're analyzing coaches, analyzing their performance, what other kind of stuff um, would you be looking at? It depends on, on again, the situation. So, um, Training would be different to a game day. Um, the game day stuff's really interesting. So the guy um, that I've I've spoken to a couple of times called Rob Mason, who's been studying in-game feedback from AFL coaches. Um, AFL coaches are like rugby coaches, and they sit in a box away from um, you know up in the stand, and they've got to communicate messages to a runner, which is the same as rugby that goes out into the field and. And then it gets communicated to players. So um, looking at the different ways that coaches use language and behavior and came up with a bit of a, uh, a scale, um, a continuum of, um, and not to say that one end is better than the other, but it just, it breaks down the behavior of, of the coach. So at one end, you'd have highly emotional information that is probably less interactive. So that would be reacting to something, whether it's positive or negative. It could be throwing a water bottle or cheering, um, but likely it's it's emotionally charged. But you're not really like I, you and I. If we were stood next to each other on the sideline, we wouldn't interact. It was that moment's about me. Um, and as you get further and further up to the other end of the scale, there would be less emotion and more interaction. So descriptive words that try and kind of put this language into a box. So You've got reacting, and then you've got um, what I've called commentating. So it's almost like you're watching the game through TV. You'd be, you know, watching it going, kick it, kick it, or pass it, or run, uh, tackle, support. Um, you know, all these kind of bits of information that, again, there's a little less information. You're probably not reacting, you're not interacting with anyone. And the players certainly don't hear it. Um, so how effective is that language? Have you really helped anybody? Possibly, probably not, though. Um, and then you'd go further up this and you'd start describing things. So um, 
I might turn to you, Brian, if you if we're coaching together and say, you know, I, th- I think we're really getting some dominance at, at the scrum, and I think it's something that we can focus on for the rest of the game. So I've seen something, um, and I've made a judgment on it, and it's a little bit more about the game. Um, and then you might go to something like analysing. So now you're starting to look for trends and patterns in the game. So it might be, Brian, we, we've just um, gone up on the, the tight head the last five scrums. Uh, or, or something like that, where I'm starting to really pick apart some of the nuances of the game. And then the last kind of step on the ladder would be strategizing. So taking those trends and patterns and then doing trying to influence the game by doing something about it. And that can be making a tactical change. It could be making a personnel change. Um, so this is kind of that continuum that I, I like to have a look at where coaches are at and see if there's a, a bit of a balance because reacting and being emotional can be good because if you're if you're a robotic some some players especially women if you're coaching women they might think you don't care and that might cause a you know a bit of separation between you and them whereas if you're analyzing everything and strategizing all the time do you know what I mean that mm. I think there's got to and often most of the coaches I see are highly emotional and have little interaction and they, and they don't really solve problems in the game. So then you start questioning, well, what is the role of the coach at game day? Is it just to perform a bit of a warm up and then watch the game? Um, because how do you influence the game um, would be a really great question uh, and have coaches kind of go through that. Well, how can I influence the game? It might be, like we just talked about tactically, maybe we're going to defend it slightly different way. We're going to go from a drift to a blitz or we're going to play with 12 up in the front line or 13 up. Um, but I think that that's how coaches have to think. They've got to kind of be in that mindset when, when, the, when the problems present themselves. Now, often a lot of this is taken away by the scoreline. So um, in Rob's research in AFL, if a team is behind by more than five scores, the coach typically switches off because they think the game is lost. There's nothing I can do here to save the ship from going down. And then the opposite is also true. So if they're five scores ahead, there's nothing I can do here. The players have got it covered. The result is in the bag and I can just sit back and relax. But it's that sweet spot of when the game is on the line and it can still go either way. I think that's where the coach earns their paycheck if they're getting paid. Um, that's how they can be effective is how can they help the, the players solve problems. Um, so that's the type of stuff that I would look at is just language and behavior on the on the sideline or in the box um, to, sh- to show coaches and, and give them, again, we, we talk about what is an effective coach. Well, effective coaches is, is someone that continues to learn and reflect on performance and, and think about what, they, what could they have done differently or... Um, did what they do have an influence on the game? So that's that's a bit of a work in progress. Uh, I think I'm going to delve into that a little bit more in the the, the coming weeks um, and see if I can put a, a GoPro on some more coaches and, and have a look at that, that type of stuff. Um, and then the, the the training side of things would be more about practice design. I think that's, that's how coaches have their biggest influence. So again, talking about training variability, um, questioning and feedback. How do you provide feedback? What kind of questions are you asking? Um, and again, that might depend on the context. 
um, if you're a, a higher level team and and you want to get high meters covered in that session, you're likely not going to stand around and have a discussion around the 23 different types of, types of um, kickoffs that you could do. You're just going to settle on one and, and get it done. And you're going to, it's going to be more about the execution, isn't it? Um, whereas if you're exploring a little bit more in that session, you might be able to, to jump in with some more questions and talk about things. Um, so yeah, the, the, the context really would have a, an impact, but I'm not sure if coaches are reflecting on that stuff um, enough or at all. And I think it can be powerful just to have a friend and just to have somebody to bounce ideas off. Often we're in these bubbles, aren't we? Sometimes when you're, you're coaching by yourself and you've got nobody to be kind of that critical friend or um, say, Hey, what do you think about this? Yeah. So I think it's a bit of a niche market at the moment. There's not a lot of people out there doing that kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure about other sports, but I haven't seen it. Not yet. Yeah, no, I love the match day stuff um, and being aware of your actions as a coach because once again, yeah, until you said you told me that a few, probably six months ago with the with the like emotion and then the tactical and the different stuff, like there's such power in it. Like I don't get too worked up, as you know, when I'm coaching, but um, there's a lot of power in become being emotional at certain times like you say because you know then like if we score a try or something or if we do something good and you get pumped and they see you being pumped then they can get energy from that and i i just learned very early on that i was living every play like a player like i was living every knock on like getting frustrated i was living every try I remember when I started out Lindwood, we ran the length of the field once and I was on the sideline and I ran the, I ran the length with them and like jumped in with them. Like I was going mad and uh, I was still a player coach at that point, but I was, um, I was made ineligible. But, um, but yeah, as coach, like we, I think you do have to be able to step back and understand your actions. Like it's like we talk about the power and influence. It's like you have so much influence over them or you could potentially and um yeah just understand that if you're screaming and shouting and and all that like what benefit is it you know and it's your it's often your fault or it's because of you as a coach if they're knocking on balls if they're making the wrong calls if they're doing the wrong things it's on you like stop getting angry you know it's because you didn't prepare them well enough yeah brian i think in the in the domains of teaching and learning and this isn't just coaching you know teaching in a school environment too intentionality is is massive I think you've really got to understand and know why you're doing things. And, and if you know that in that moment, okay, I need, I need the positive energy or, you know, stern or sensitive going into half time, what kind of message do they need? Do they need a stern one or do they need a sensitive one and being intentional around that um, rather than just going in and, and giving it stern because that's your, your bad cop and somebody else's good cop. Um, I think you've got to change it up because you know, that, that is language of behavior, isn't it? It's about, trying to connect with other people by doing different things. Um, and that's, that goes back to that expertise as well, isn't it? And, and drawing on experiences and knowing your players and, and knowing what can you do to get the best out of them in that moment. You know, that might be just running on with a big smile if you're carrying water on and just giving them a massive slap on the back and just saying, that's awesome. Do that again. Yeah, 100%. And less is often more with coaching and it's 
Like I've had so many of those coaches that it's only the stern. You know, you're two or three scores up at halftime and it's, lads, we should have executed that in the corner after 15 minutes. You know, or like you find the, hey, you know, that line out the ball, you know, we need to get that right. And it's, come on, lads, come on, we need to get that right. And, you know, and then it's all of a sudden a more somber mood at halftime, even though you're two or three scores up and it should be just increasing the happiness and the the keeping the train going or the ball rolling you know what i mean and coaches mm-hmm. get that so just you just kind of triggered my mind but i mean yeah coaches get that so wrong often you know by by trying to pick faults yeah and, and you can intentionally be silent and that, that that's a massive you know tool in the bag too um you know the the, the, old, the old uh you know silent waiting game and wait time uh, I think somebody told me once, you know, after you ask a question, you know, you've got to give it a solid eight seconds. But somebody told me once that they they've been in a in a meeting where it was all closer to forty seconds, but it was intentional, because with that uncomfortable silence, the cogs in the in the brain start turning. Go well, somebody's got to speak. Is it going to be me? What am I going to say? And so it's just being able to 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 pick the right tool for the right job, isn't it? You know, that's. That's what we're trying to do a lot of the time. And that's what we want the players to do too. Yeah, that's uh, that's the best one, I think, coaches, when uh, we ask a question and we don't give them a chance to answer. <laughs> we tell them the answer <laughs> that we have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stuff. Um, thanks for your time, Steve. It's been, uh, been unreal chatting. Who's your favourite coach? Ooh. Oh, look, I, I've got to go back to Rusty. Um, he He's exceptional at, at, at what he's doing. Um, he's different, isn't he? Um, he's the king of connection. He keeps calling people the king of something, so I've, I've called him the king of connection. He's always got time for someone, and I, and I think we can learn a lot from that. Um, and he's just a divergent thinker. He's, he's blazing his own trail, and he's, and he's doing things differently, and he's ruffling some feathers, and... I think he's really changed people's perceptions of what he's doing. You know, he's he's the, one of the few coaches I know that will happily go and run around with six-year-olds and then can mix it with a with a national team um, without batting an eyelid. He's just so comfortable in in himself and, and what he's trying to do. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, a couple of people that I've I, I guess that I've met along the way, Scott Wisemantle. Um, was pretty cool. I, I connected with him in South Africa when I was an analyst. I went to Stellenbosch for a, for a while there um, to the, the talent optimization program. Um, and what he was doing in his coaching, he was making the, the complex so simple. And I think that's what good coaches do. The detail in which he was seeing the game, but then he was able to kind of just decipher it into a different way for, for people's understanding. I saw him again in Houston and it was just so much more of the same. So um, he's pretty cool. Oh, who should I go for a third, a third one in the community game? You know, I'm going to go go with Phil Llewellyn because we both know him. Phil's another, he's a bit of a connection guy. He asks unbelievable questions. 
I think he and he, I think he just adds a ton of value. So I'm going to go with my my old mate Phil. I know he coached you at the Ravens, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, for yeah, season just under a season, maybe. Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, he's a good guy back in England now, isn't he? That's right. Yeah, Oxford Oxford University Women's Program, uh, and doing some other things around. So I I think I hope he he can land a, a really good role because I think he's got a huge amount to offer. And again, I think he, he just things see th- sees things slightly differently to some other people. But yeah, his questions are superb. And, and like you, that's why he's got a really good podcast, stuff that I couldn't do. No, no, you definitely could if you wanted. Hope you enjoyed the chat. If you do, would you please send it on to some friends and make sure that you're subscribed also. Next week, I'll be chatting with a Heineken Cup winning captain who was also nominated for World Player of the Year in his day. He's now living a pretty unconventional life compared to most retired pros, and I think you'll really enjoy that chat. Cheers to Jay, who left a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts saying, Great podcast. I'm loving the variety of guests. It's not just your generic rugby player interview. I really enjoy hearing your feedback, so it would be awesome if you also left a rating and review there on Apple Podcasts. Here in BC last fall, there's a new competition set up called the Coastal Cup, which was a regional competition where the Rugby Canada Academy side played in it, two universities, UBC and UVic, and then clubs came together from across the province to form three regional teams. I played for the Vancouver Wave and... Aaron was the defence coach for that side. We won the competition, went undefeated and was a great group. Really enjoyed the experience. But after we stopped recording, Aaron mentioned Essie Christian Esterhazen, who was the head coach of the team, as another coach he admires that he forgot about. I asked him for one and he gave four, but yeah, fully agree with him. Essie was brilliant during that campaign and I certainly learned a lot from him as well. If you're a regular listener and would like to support the pod, you can do so by signing up to the Patreon and the link is in the show notes. It's really easy to do. It's the price of a coffee each month for the four to five hours of content that I put out and you can opt out whenever you want. So yeah, link is in the show notes and also in my Instagram bio. Thank you to those who have already signed up. Your support genuinely means the world to me. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Emil, for clicking in today. Have a good one. Cheers.